0: On April 24, 2019, in the dead of night with no explanation, Marie Yovanovitch got a call from the U.S. State Department, removing her immediately from her post as ambassador to Ukraine.
1: It was, you know, past one o'clock in the morning in Ukraine the following day. And I said, I I, I couldn't do that right, you know, at that minute. It was a difficult call. I mean, I, I wanted an explanation. I felt that I was owed that. And uh, she either couldn't or wouldn't give it to me. And just uh, stood by her instructions and she was clearly the messenger she was not um, the one who was calling the shots it was difficult because you know i had a whole life in kiev you can't just all of a sudden jump on a plane and, and leave and it was clear where this was going this was not going in a good direction
0: a few days later back in washington dc a shell shocked yovanovich learned the extraordinary details of why she had been fired from her job hello everyone this is when it mattered I'm Chitra Raghavan. After the shock wore off, Ambassador Yovanovich decided to fight back. Pilloried by the right-wing media, she publicly testified in Congress under oath during Trump's impeachment hearings, resulting in his first of two impeachments. Yovanovitch has written a fascinating new memoir called Lessons from the Edge, in which she systematically lays out the months-long attempts by Trump and his cronies to ruin her reputation and subvert democracy using a foreign power, Ukraine. And she describes how she seized back her narrative from the former president. As congressional hearings cast new light on Trump's efforts to stay in power, culminating in the January 6, 2021 riots in the U.S. Capitol by his supporters, I'm so honored to welcome the former U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Marie Yovanovitch. Ambassador Yovanovitch, welcome to When It Mattered.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So let's open with that night of April 14, 2019, when you got that late night call at your home in Kyiv in Ukraine from the State Department's head of personnel, Carol Perez. This was, I think, three days after Zelensky had won the presidency of Ukraine, a critical time in Ukraine's history and our relationship with that country. You were hosting an official event when the call came, and Ms. Perez insisted that you drive to the embassy immediately for a secure line to Washington, DC. And when you got on that secure call, what did she tell you?
1: Well the first call at around uh, 10 Ukraine time I was told that you know there was something off that the 7th floor which is where the secretary of state has his office was very nervous and there was concerns about what was happening down the street which I'd never heard that term before but learned that that referred to the white house and she just wanted to give me a heads up and I said well you know what is this about <laughs> uh what do you want me to do and she said she didn't know that she'd call me back in a couple of hours um and i should just hang tight so i stayed at the embassy and you know did a little bit of work while i waited for her to call back and then she called back well i actually called her to find out what was happening and that's when she said i needed to come home immediately that day i mean it was still i guess day in washington with a seven hour time difference. It was, you know, past one o'clock in the morning in Ukraine the following day. And I said, I I, I couldn't do that right, you know, at that minute. It was a difficult call. I mean, I I wanted an explanation. I felt that I was owed that. And uh, she either couldn't or wouldn't give it to me and just uh, stood by her instructions. And she was clearly the messenger. She was not um, the one who was calling the shots. It was difficult because... You know, I had a whole life in Kiev. You can't just all of a sudden jump on a plane and and leave. And it was clear where this was going. This was not going in a good direction. And I was worried my uh, 90-year-old mother was living with me. And I was worried, how was I going to get her back to the United States? And I asked um, Carol, you know, would I be able to come back and pack out and bring my mother home? Could I accompany her? on the trip back. And she couldn't guarantee that. And I said, well, you know, just keep me here for another week so that I can, you know, put my affairs in orders, pack up my belongings, you know, bring my mom home with me. And she wouldn't allow that either. Uh, Again, it wasn't her call, um, but it was a really difficult way to leave Kiev.
0: My goodness. And what a chaotic situation. So you leave everything behind and you get back to Washington, D.C. And a few days later, I guess, you go to the State Department to figure out what had happened. So what did you learn and who did you learn it from?
1: So um, Deputy Secretary of State Sullivan saw me and um, basically told me that um, the White House, President Trump, was insisting uh, that I depart Ukraine. And the timing was up to me. He said I would be allowed to return uh, to pick up my mom and pack up my things, but um You know, it was clear that they wanted me out of Ukraine as quickly as possible, and it was clear that what the concern was, is that if I didn't hurry this process along, that I would be fired by tweet, um, as the previous Secretary of State had been. That was obviously a concern uh, for, for the State Department, and they said that this was for my protection, but even at the time, as upset as I was, I knew it wasn't about protecting me. It was about protecting Secretary of State Pompeo, the State Department, and the President of the United States, because if the President of the United States fired an ambassador by tweet, there will be a lot of questions.
0: And what was the urgency? Why did they believe that he was about to potentially fire you by tweet? Why that urgency that night to get you back and remove you from your post? Well, it's
1: a good question, but I guess um, I mean there the drumbeat had been going on for over a year among certain circles around President Trump, not within the government but outside the government, um, Mayor Giuliani, who was his private attorney and people affiliated and associated with him, as well as as well as others who I guess had their own reasons for uh, wanting wanting me gone. And the crazy thing is that, Presidents get to nominate their own ambassadors and they get to remove their own ambassadors. They don't have to start a whole smear campaign to get them out of the country. And that's, you know, that was the tip off. That was the tell that there were other things that were happening here. And for those who were paying attention, which was, you know, the press and um, other people who, who, who watched the Ukraine account and the Russia account. Um, as well as bad actors who are watching everything that we're doing, they, they were noticing this. And then when I was removed at the behest of Ukrainians, corrupt Ukrainians partnering with, uh, with Giuliani, um, I think the, the message went out you know, that you can manipulate this government um, if you don't like um, what the ambassador is doing. And just to remind the audience, what I was doing was fulfilling our US policy. We had a strong anti-corruption policy. Ukraine itself had a strong anti-corruption policy and uh, we were working on that agenda, but it's a difficult one and um, it's hard to move things forward. And so, you know, there were a lot of resistors, including Giuliani's Ukrainian partners
0: and and let's go into that a little bit there were like four or five different goals in this attempt to get you out by maligning your reputation and then pulling you out right there were multiple goals and multiple uh, cast of characters in this amazing story can you just list sort of those key goals you mentioned one which is like you've had a whole career 33 years in the state department fighting corruption fostering democratic principles around the world and they wanted you out because why
1: well, anytime you make you reform, uh, whether it's in the US or uh, in Ukraine or another country, you are changing things. And so somebody who's benefiting from the status quo, perhaps legally, um, but perhaps corruptly, is unhappy, right? And so they're going to resist and they're going to fight back. And that was very true in Ukraine. Very powerful interests um, who were benefiting from the corruption in Ukraine didn't like what we were doing even though it was U.S. policy. And so, so, and and the prosecutor general, who's kind of like our attorney general, uh, he was one of those people that didn't like what we were doing. So he wanted me out. And he apparently uh, made a deal with Giuliani that if uh, Giuliani would see to it that I was removed, he would see what he could do about investigating the Biden family, which was what uh, Giuliani's goal was, because the Trump people feared that Biden would be um, the competitor, the Democratic rival in upcoming presidential elections, and they wanted to uncover dirt they believed was in Ukraine. Um, And as Giuliani said later on publicly in May, um, Giuliani believed that I would uh, stand in the way of those baseless investigations, basically. I think that was one of the primary things. I think Poroshenko was hoping that through this deal, Trump would perhaps endorse him for president because he was um, uh, running for uh, for election in 2019. I think there were energy interests um, that were separate but related in a certain way that uh, felt that they would benefit if I was gone and no longer taking such an active interest in energy policy, uh, which was, is one of the... Um, big areas where there's corruption, because there's a lot of money there, right? So there are a lot of sordid um, backroom deals that that happen uh, in gas and oil in, in Ukraine.
0: Mm-hmm. There was a multi-billion dollar potential energy contract, right, with a Ukraine gas company and, and a Florida billionaire who had access to Donald Trump, for instance. Like there, there was huge money at stake.
1: Yeah, huge money at stake. And I, I think that, you know, it's possible that we'll We'll find out even more as, you know, there are more uh, investigations and more books are written about those years.
0: And it also would give Rudy Giuliani legitimacy and credibility if he was able to move you out because it showed the Ukrainian factions that wanted to work with him that he had power at the White House. So there's layers of motives behind this attempt to to ruin your reputation and then to, to pull you out of the country. And it was it's kind of ironic given your strong history throughout your career and actually <laughs> fighting corruption and, and, and there's sort of this rich irony to the whole thing. So when, when you started, you first started hearing about this, not that night when you heard from Carol Perez, right? You had this feeling that you were ultimately going to get recalled because your friends at the high levels in the Ukrainian government government and in the State Department had been telling you that some of this stuff was going on, right?
1: Well, not at the State Department, because, um, you know, I, I would call back to the State Department and the NSC and ask them, you know, this is what I'm being told. I'm being told that, you know, um, Lutsenko and Giuliani have this deal. And and people were like, no, no, that, that that's... We don't know anything about that. You're doing a great job. You're following, you know, you're implementing our policy. And in fact, the State Department in early March asked me to stay on an additional year. And then several weeks later, there was the beginning of the public campaign to smear me and, you know, pave the way for my, my removal. So it was really kind of head spinning. On the one hand, you know, professional um, Washington is saying, you're doing a great job. You're implementing our policies. Um, We want you to stay. And on the other hand, there is this parallel track of, you know, frankly, bad actors in the U.S. and bad actors in Ukraine who are doing their best to undermine me, but also our policy. And that is a very dangerous thing.
0: In your more than three decades in the U.S. Foreign Service, the majority of it has been served in countries that were once part of the former Soviet Union. You've served in some of the toughest assignments in the world, you know, hardship duty, including Somalia, Armenia, Kyrgyzstan, Ukraine, and you were ambassador not to one but three countries, which is a rare honor and a large part of your interest in this part of the world is your family background. Tell us a little bit about your parents, your grandparents, and their their amazing history and your arrival in the United States and Connecticut eventually from, from Europe and Canada.
1: Um, well, I, um, I mean, as, as you point out, my family is from Europe. Uh, I'm half Russian, I'm from both sides of my, of my family. And both of my parents grew up in autocratic regimes. Both of them were eventually stateless. And that is a very precarious thing if you are um, growing up during World War II and you are stateless. And so when they finally made their way to the United States with me, they were just grateful to have found safe haven, a place where there's freedom and you have freedom of worship, freedom of speech, opportunity for their children and for themselves. And they brought us up to be you know, grateful for that and um, told us that, you know, even though we didn't have a lot materially, um, but that we were lucky, we were the fortunate ones and we needed to give back. And so, you know, there were a lot of uh, detours in my life as often happens, Um, but eventually I found my way to the Foreign Service because it married up my desire to serve the American people with my desire to pursue, you know, my interests in foreign policy and history and politics and travel. And so it was the right career for me.
0: What was that pivotal moment that led you to join the Foreign Service? Was there an, an aha moment? Yeah,
1: I've been thinking about it. Uh, I've been working in Manhattan uh, in advertising and marketing. And I was coming to work on the, the subway, reading uh, the article, the first news that uh, we had invaded this tiny little island in the Caribbean called Grenada, And I was shocked. Uh, you know, this this was before our, our forever wars, uh, and it was relatively unusual for the U.S. to be doing something like that, and it just seemed to me, based on what I knew at the time, this this couldn't be right, and it, you know, I was all full of this this article, and, and what did this mean, and I walked into the office, and, you know, the designer, and the copy editor, and, and production person were all, like, looking at a graphic, and, you know, I I, like, in the newspaper and said, can you guys believe this? And, you know, I barely got a glance up because they were so focused on the layout for the the next advertisement. <laughs> and my aha moment was, I need to be in a career where everybody goes, yeah, we need to be debating this. We need to be discussing this. And is this the right thing, the wrong thing? What What's our next step and everything else. And I realized that I needed to do something in my career, in my, you know, my professional life that was closer to my interests. And so that's when I really turned back to the idea of joining the Foreign Service and put in my name for, you know, taking the exam and so forth.
0: And and give us a brief description of your career trajectory, some of the key countries you were in and things that you were really proud of doing in those countries.
1: Uh, Well, my very first tour was in uh, Mogadishu, Somalia in 1986. I was there for a year and a half, and that was a tough tour, I I will tell you. (laughs) I I was uh, responsible for management issues, administrative issues. In countries like Somalia, embassies are pretty much self-sufficient. And so it was my job to make sure that there was um, water for everybody in their houses. We had a water truck to provide diesel for the generators that we maintain to keep everybody's electricity going because there was no city power. Um, It was my job to buy that um, diesel and, uh, you know, across a war zone. It was my job to make sure that the garbage was collected. I mean, all these kinds of things that I think most of us take for granted and certainly don't think is part of the glamorous diplomatic lifestyle. (laughs) Um, Yeah, that's what I was doing in Somalia. And there was There were a lot of challenges there. It was my first job. I'd never done anything like this. I didn't particularly have supportive uh, supervisors. I was one of two women at the embassy, and we had a huge embassy because the embassy was a platform for um, not just the State Department, but the military and other agencies. And so it was rough times. When I left Somalia, I thought I was, um, I I had put in a a bid to go to London, um, and I thought I was going to London in order to the Foreign Service you know, to start uh, interviewing in a country like London, where I knew there would be jobs for, for Americans. And instead, what I found in London was my career, because I had very supportive supervisors. I had lots of opportunities. And within, I would say, the first nine months, I uh, was working in the ambassador's office as a staff assistant, which is a very lowly position. But you have the opportunity to see everything that the ambassador is doing and the length and the breadth of the, of the special relationship.
0: And you had a lot of great mentors too. I mean, you, you, being a woman in, in the foreign service was at that time. And even, I guess, even uh, much later was a very difficult thing, but you also, so you had a lot of detractors and then you also had mentors. Give us a couple of stories of each.
1: Yeah, well, when I was in London, uh, so I I worked for three different um, men as ambassadors, and one of the, um, and, you know, they were all very, uh, very supportive of me. And so one, Henry Caddo, when he, when he first arrived, you know, there are certain things that ambassadors, all American ambassadors have to do in London. And one was to address this all-male club uh, on economic issues. You know, it's a must-do event. So the economic counselor was a woman. And so when we submitted um, who would be going with the ambassador, the club said, uh, no, we're sorry, we're, we're an all-male club and she can't come. And so, you know, I think a lot of ambassadors would have said, okay. And Ambassador Katja looked at me and he said, well, tell them I can't come then. And that club made a different decision. And I think that's what it takes to make change. It takes not only women fighting for for their rights and their right to be at the table. It takes men to support them.
0: And on the flip side, what did you find?
1: Well, you know, I mean, the most dramatic example was uh, when there was a smear campaign launched against me uh, in March of 2019. And it was ugly, and it was coordinated, and it was very public. I knew that I needed the State Department to come out publicly to support me. And I felt it had to be Secretary Pompeo because, you know, President Trump had retweeted one of the articles. His son, Donald Trump Jr., had uh, sort of tweeted something out about this. is not an exact quote, but something like, uh, "We need to replace these clowns with, real, like, Yovanovitch with real ambassadors." Um, so, if the State Department didn't support me, I mean, you know, TikTok, I was going to be out of there soon. So I was told, this was over a weekend, I was told, well, yeah, we will talk to Secretary Pompeo on Monday. But in the meantime, why don't you put out your own statement? And it was suggested, I indicate my loyalty to President Trump and, and the Constitution. And thank God they said the Constitution, because, you know, we are Americans and we do not pledge loyalty to individuals. We ended that, as you know, with the revolution.
0: And and so how did you manage that situation? So this is now a Saturday
1: night in Ukraine. And at, at home, I drafted up two statements, uh, one that felt more like it was what along the suggested lines and one that I wrote after that because I just didn't think I could do the first one. And uh, it was about Ukrainian elections and urging Ukrainians um, you know, to come out and vote. And also, ironically, given what happened during our elections in in the United States um, talking about how, you know, elections are the heartbeat of a democracy and it is important to respect the results, whatever they are. At that time, we were worried that Poroshenko would not accept the results um, should he, as was expected, lose. President Poroshenko did one of the most important things in his presidency and accepted the results. Obviously here in this country,
0: we had a very different scenario. Interesting, and going back to the demeaning women, there was a July 25th phone call between then President Trump and President Zelensky in which Trump is said to have said, described you as the woman and that you were bad news. What did you make of that and of President Zelensky's response? Obviously, he's now you know a hero with his response to uh, Russia's invasion, but at that moment, that phone call must have been pretty startling to hear what was said.
1: Well, and further, Trump noted, having already fired me, he noted that I was going to go through some things. And so when I heard um, or when I read the transcript in September, when it was released, that was chilling to me because I thought, you know, this is a guy who has already removed me from my position. What more am I going to go through? What does he have in mind? It was really chilling. With regard to Zelensky, I mean, this is a man who, as you know, had no background in politics. He had been president for a couple of months. He was on the first really substantive phone call. It was, I think, it was the third call, but the first substantive phone call with his most important partner and leadership partner. And you know, he had a specific mission, which well, two. One, he wanted a meeting with Trump. You know, to symbolize the the the, the partnership. But secondly, he wanted Trump to uh, approve the second shipment of uh, anti-tank missiles, the, the, the Javelin they're called. And um, so I think that, frankly, Zelensky was doing what so many other world leaders have done and so many other American leaders have done. He told Trump exactly what he thought Trump wanted to hear.
0: And when you listened to the, or read the transcript or heard what was said, the idea that you were part of a conversation between the two presidents At a critical moment in the the historic relationship between the two, what was that like to read that stuff?
1: You know, it was really kind of, (laughs) it it was so strange to me because, as you said, I mean, ambassadors, whether they're political or career, are not usually the subject of conversations between presidents. And mind you, I had been out of the job for several months by that point. I mean, what does that tell you?
0: Yeah, very much on his mind. (laughs) Very strange. Yeah. So because of your long experience as ambassador to all these countries, and even as a diplomat, you're very used to dealing with and being prepared for propaganda and counter propaganda and false narratives. But usually it's by a foreign power, right? You're trained to deal with it and to recognize it and to offset it. But there was something very different about this disinformation campaign that was so startling.
1: Yeah, because it was coming from the U.S. as well. And you know, that's not the way it usually works. Uh, Usually, we are supported by our government when we are doing um, what the government is asking us to do. And this was obviously not, not that. Uh, So yeah, it was quite unusual.
0: So you were nominated by President Barack Obama to the Ukrainian ambassadorship in 2016, and you had already served in Ukraine once as, I guess, the deputy chief of mission. What drew you back to Ukraine?
1: Well, the Ukrainian people. I mean, I think every American can see, <laughs> you know, the spirit of Ukraine, uh, the spirit of the Ukrainian people now in this existential fight against Russia. But that spirit has always been there, and I could see it when I was there the first time. And you know, I continued to watch the news in in between my two tours there. Um, there was the Revolution of Dignity in 2014, when the Ukrainian people really stood up and said, "We are done with corruption. We want Yanukovych to go, the president." And we want uh, a real campaign against corruption. We want to live with dignity. We, we don't want to have to pay bribes, uh, you know, just to, you know, to live our lives. I really admired that. And I, you know, was watching from afar. And when there was an opportunity to go back uh, as ambassador, I really welcomed that.
0: And, and by then, had Putin already annexed Crimea, the Crimea region? And was that before or after?
1: Yeah, so the Revolution of Dignity was in, uh, started in November of 2013 and ended in uh, February 2014. And although there were longstanding plans to illegally annex Crimea, Putin did it in February, March 2014, when Ukraine basically didn't have a government, uh, you know, and there was maximum chaos. And he was able to do that almost without firing a shot. And then a month later, he started the war in Donbass. Uh, which he continued for the next eight years. And, you know, I mean, we sometimes forget that was a hot war in the middle of Europe. Two or three Ukrainians died every week. And then when he thought the time was right, he expanded the war mightily mightily, uh, on February 24th of this year.
0: And watching that and knowing Ukraine and understanding Putin what do you make of where this war is right now and where you think it is likely to go especially if Putin wins? so
1: you know right now uh you know there have been different phases of the war and and right now we're in this grinding face off in uh, in the east in the donbass with Russia uh, having learned from their earlier massive losses you know, to try not to get sucked into urban fighting and to try to try to minimize their losses, although they are taking heavy, heavy casualties. They're using their great advantage with the long distance artillery and things like that to just pound the Ukrainians. And they are making slow but incremental progress. Um, So that's why it's so important right now for Western assistance to get to even out that playing field. Uh, to get the artillery, the long-range artillery to Ukraine, train the Ukrainians up on that. And hopefully it will provide the Ukrainians with the ability to uh, fight back and perhaps even retake some of those lands. Where this ends, um, you know, it always ends uh, with a negotiation of some kind. All wars end that way. And I think both sides right now, I mean, it's been clear from the very beginning that Russia is not interested in negotiations at this point, even even though there were some desultory talks in the beginning, Russia didn't send its A team. And now, you know, the talks are sort of paused and the Ukrainians also after Bucha, after Mariupol, after, you know, not only the death and the destruction, but the depravity of uh, what they saw there. The Ukrainian people are saying, you know, we need to make that suffering count. Um, And they're not ready. uh, They're not ready to to give up. I mean, they are continuing to fight on, but, you know, the toll is very heavy. Um, So I think it's going to come down to uh, what are the facts on the ground. And uh, I think both sides right now are hoping that uh, they can grind it out over the summer. And um, that at the end of this, you know, each side is hoping that the facts on the ground will help them go to the negotiating table with the advantage. Um, but it's it's really hard to tell right now where where we're going to be.
0: But the probability is that Russia will once again have big chunks of Ukraine, right, potentially. And so then what happens more down the line? I mean, where, where will this stop with respect to Putin?
1: So this is why it's so important uh, that we help Ukraine stop Putin. Because if Putin is not stopped in Donbas, he will keep on going, in my opinion, through Ukraine. You know, in the beginning, you know, it was, it was clear his goal was to have all of Ukraine, um, but the Ukrainians stopped him. Now he's coming at it through a different route. And if he's not stopped in Ukraine, he will continue west. Uh, You know, on the eve of the war, he outlined that there were other countries that should also be brought back into the fold of Mother Russia. Last week, he compared himself to Peter the Great and, you know, his sacred task of returning the lands to the motherland. So, you know, I mean, his agenda is pretty clear. And I think it is better if Putin is stopped in Ukraine than if he needs to be stopped elsewhere. I mean, bottom line, my view is that we deal with Putin now or we have to deal with him later.
0: And how do you deal with him? Is it the US and its allies doing everything they can? Should they be doing something differently? How do you stop Putin in his tracks?
1: Well, I think, you know, more, more, more. I think that the basic policy is right, but I think we need to keep on arming and rearming so that uh, the Ukrainians can continue to fight as long as they are able and willing.
0: One of the things that was very, very clear in your book is the role of the State Department, the importance of diplomacy, the importance of the role of the ambassador in countries and, and the important work that they do in fostering democratic principles and preventing sort of corruption and all of the stuff that go against American values, make sure American funds are being well spent. And at the end of the Trump administration, as you pointed out, the department had been gutted and. Weakened, right? Politicized under two secretaries of state, Rex Tillerson and Mike Pompeo. And what do you see as the future of the State Department, especially given you, the response that you saw from them when you were under attack? And and how does one rebuild and actually make a difference in the world after something like that?
1: Well, you know, I think that the State Department is under <laughs> new management now. Uh, I think that Tony Blinken is committed to. Rebuilding the State Department and is taking certain steps in that direction, including by, you know, recruiting not only uh, entry level, but also people at more senior levels that are principled and experienced and professional. And I think there are a number of efforts underway right now with regard to reform of the State Department. The State Department, the last um, legislation for the State Department was in uh, 1980. That's a long time ago. And uh, you know, we have you know, completely different society in the United States now, and uh, we have different challenges in the world. And so I think we need to think hard about what those challenges are, what are the tools that we need to address them, what are the policies that we need, you know, both personnel and policy, and you know, put that down in legislation, uh, get a champion, both in the executive branch, who should be the secretary of state, but also on the Hill, Uh, And I think we need to tell our story to the American people uh, because I think diplomacy isn't necessarily well understood. I mean, the American people understand what the military does, you know, not only the military writ large, but, you know, all of the subbranches, right? The Marines, what what the Air Force does and so forth. We think we know what the CIA does. (laughs) And with the State Department, it's less well known because if... We're doing our job right, we shouldn't be hitting the headlines. If we are successful and we can't always be successful because you know, that's not always uh, the hand that you're, you're, you're dealt. But you know, George Schultz, uh, Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State, used to talk about it as tending the garden. Every day, you are maintaining and building relations with our allies and partners, but also with our adversaries. And um, he likened it to a garden where every day you have to get in there and you have to nurture the beautiful flowers, but you also have to nip the weeds and the buds so that they don't get out of control in the garden. And that's what diplomats do so that hopefully we never have to deploy our military.
0: You talked about how you had hoped that the State Department would back you and fight for you in order to clear your name, but that clearly didn't happen. And not only that, they were against initially against you testifying, right, under oath as a sort of a star witness in the impeachment inquiry, which focused on Trump's dealings with Ukraine. Why did you decide to testify and how difficult was it given your long tenure at the State Department and your loyalty to the department and to, and to diplomacy?
1: very difficult because you know i'm (laughs) i'm not a rock the boat type of person you know yes we have policy debates but you know once a decision is made by higher ups i I implement and so you know this was kind kind of the same where i was specifically told and then my lawyers were told that i and other witnesses shouldn't participate in the impeachment inquiry as i thought about it uh you know this was a completely legitimate undertaking by by the congress Congress is a co-equal branch uh, with the executive branch. Impeachment is foreseen, uh, specifically in the Constitution, and Congress is tasked with the job of oversight of the executive branch. So I didn't particularly think that I had something to add, you know, since I had left uh, Ukraine months earlier. But if the Congress wanted to hear from me, I felt that I had to do my duty and and agree to do it. But it was difficult because, as you said, I'm kind of a disciplined rules follower. But also, I was wondering whether there would be reprisals. And Trump's comment to Zelensky that she's going to be going through some things, he already fired me. What more was I going to go through? And if I testified, would there be reprisals? And so none of us knew, but I think all of us made the decision that our greater loyalty was to the Constitution.
0: And after you testified, you received hundreds of supportive letters and all kinds of accolades and I think you had a puppy named after you, a dolphin named after you, (laughs) you you were called a badass, Uh, you got like, you're a badass cards, you had a, you were featured on Saturday Night Live, which was very funny skit that I, I watched today. What was that like to like, after having been through months of this insults and sort of reputational slurs, what was that like to sort of suddenly get all these accolades and did that help ease the pain of some of what you had been through?
1: Yeah, well, it was so unexpected and so kind of otherworldly, um, you know, a little bit of while I wasn't the person depicted in the in the the vicious campaign against me, neither was I this, you know, heroine, as some people called me. And so it, it, it was it was really a little bit strange to to see, you know, my name, my face uh, attached to all of this.
0: What's interesting is now you have these new congressional hearings and the same people who kind of pulled you into that political maelstrom, right, are still at it. And these congressional hearings are about the January 6th, 2021 riots that were instigated by supporters of Trump and Giuliani. And there's the possibility that President then President Trump could once again run for reelection in, in 2024. And you were kind of chapter one of that saga. What's it like to watch these hearings now to see it's still ongoing, to still see these the, the impact of what happened that started with your story?
1: Yeah, well, I think this makes clear the importance of holding our leaders accountable. My role in the impeachment inquiry was not to offer an opinion uh, as to whether or not Donald Trump should have been impeached and convicted. My job was just to be a fact witness, which is what I did. But now that I'm out of the State Department, I will tell you that if using the office of the presidency for personal and political gain, which is what he did when he asked a foreign president to investigate a domestic political rival and held back, you know, the the offer of of a meeting with with the president of the United States, held back um, supplying javelins, again, using his office for his own political gain. If that isn't worthy of uh, an impeachment conviction, it's not clear to me what is. And I think that what happened uh, was that when the Senate failed to convict then-President Trump in 2020, I think he was emboldened. I think he was emboldened to feel that he could do uh, whatever he wanted. And as the uh, January 6th committee is making clear, he certainly went to extraordinary lengths to try to overturn the legitimate election results here in the United States.
0: Having seen what you've seen and been through what you've been, do you have faith in our democracy and confidence in its strength and future, given what you are especially now seeing and a potential run for re-election by by Donald Trump?
1: Well, I'm an optimist. Um, You know, Colin Powell always used to say that um, optimism is a force multiplier. And if you go into something and think, we're never going to make this right, chances are we won't. Um, but I think that all of us working together we can keep our democracy strong and uh, vibrant and responsive to the American people. I think we have great challenges now and I think we are going to continue in the near near term to have continuing challenges Um, but in the long term I do have faith in the American people. We have had civil war, um, we've had the cold war, we've had all sorts of challenges and we have been able to come through them in the end and I think that um, this is no different. We will come through it in the end. And you know, I'll, I'll tell you one of the reasons why I have such optimism is, you know, working with students. <laughs> they are still optimistic. They are still energetic. They are still ready to tackle the issues of the world. And um, I have a lot of faith in them.
0: So, what are you doing today now that you have retired from the State Department? Well.
1: I am um, doing a lot of uh, public speaking to various groups on talking about my book, but also that gives me an opportunity to talk about Ukraine, uh, Russia's war of aggression against Ukraine, but not just Ukraine, against Europe and against the international order. Um, I think it's really important that we keep eyes on, even though, you know, we are now in the fourth months of of this war and I think everybody's tired, Um, but I think the stakes are really, really high, not just for the Ukrainians, but for the rest of us. And so we need to we need to keep focus. Uh, so I'm I'm trying to to do my small part in keeping the focus on.
0: In your book uh, Lessons from the Edge, which is an incredibly fascinating read from start to finish, you talk about this huge emotional and mental toll that what you went through took on you. At one point, you believed you even had post-traumatic stress disorder. Until a psychiatrist you consulted with said, "Well, it's not post; it's still ongoing." But I'm I'm curious to know how are you doing today, and and have you sort of put this behind you? Does it come back at you? What's going on? Yeah. Well,
1: thank you for asking. Yeah. I mean, I think that writing the book was hugely helpful in terms of you know processing everything and seeing what had happened and my reactions and. Um, what other people had done and so forth. So yeah, I, I think I'm in a in a pretty good place, actually. Thank you for asking.
0: And And how do you think it has changed your view of our role and our place in the world if it has in any way for good or for bad?
1: I think that we are not the only superpower in the world anymore. Uh, there's not only China and there's not only empires going down, like Russia creating huge huge disturbances on the way down. Um, But there are other, you know, middling powers that want a seat at the table. And so, you know, I'm really with Bill Burns, who, you know, had been at the State Department, is now director of the CIA, who says that the U.S. needs to figure out how to be the pivotal power. Uh, In other words, not the superpower, but the power that has kind of the last word and is able to throw its weight to get events and decisions moving in a way that benefits not just us, but other countries as well. That means, you know, we need to be more nimble. We need to be smarter, more resourceful, and um, very energetic.
0: One of the interesting stories you you talked about when you were younger and before you joined the Foreign Service, you know, you did a brief stint at waitressing and you said you always kept your black apron with you just in case you ever, ever needed it. And I'm curious, looking back at your younger self, the person that always kept that black apron in case she ever needed it, the distinguished ambassador who was fired by or sitting president, the marketing executive, the young woman entering the Foreign Service and finding the challenges of being a female in a male-dominated career. The woman who was personally targeted and and maligned by the president Donald Trump and his cronies as she tried to do her duty to her country. What would you say to that young woman about the journey that she has been on?
1: Well, it's a pretty improbable journey, I think. You know, I, I don't think any of my um, professors at Princeton would have uh, expected me to, you know, to have a successful diplomatic career, let alone be. Uh, be an ambassador. I think when they visited me abroad, they were always a little bemused. Um, But I think, you know, it speaks to the power of perseverance. Um, You know, that black apron, which I still have, by the way, (laughs) to hope for the best and work for the best, but also make sure you have plans in case worse things happen. And, you know, the need to be resilient. And, And finally, to really enjoy what you're doing. Because I think, you know, all of us spend so much time at work We need to like what we're doing because I think that's when you really bring your heart and soul to it, and that's when you're most successful.
0: Ambassador Yovanovitch, thank you so much for joining me on When It Mattered and for this fascinating conversation. It's been an honor and a pleasure.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Marie Yovanovitch served as U.S. Ambassador to Ukraine, Armenia, and Kyrgyzstan during her distinguished 33-year diplomatic career in the U.S. Foreign Service. She retired from the State Department in 2020 and is a senior fellow at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace and a non-resident fellow at Georgetown University. She has received multiple awards, including the Presidential Distinguished Service Award twice, the Secretary's Diplomacy for Freedom Award, The Trainer Award for Excellence in the Conduct of Diplomacy, and the Penn Benenson Courage Award. Yovanovitch is the author of a riveting new memoir, Lessons from the Edge. I highly recommend it. This is When It Mattered. I'm Chitra Raghavan. When It Mattered is a podcast from Good Story, an advisory firm helping technology startups with brand strategy, positioning, and narrative. Our producer is Jeremy Corr, founder and CEO of Executive Podcasting Solutions, with production assistance from Kate Cruz. Our creative advisor is Adi Weinland and our research and logistics lead is Sarah Muller. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts or your preferred podcast platform. And if you like the show, please rate it five stars, leave a review, and do recommend it to your friends, family and colleagues. For questions, comments, and transcripts, please visit our website at goodstory.io or send us an email at podcast at goodstory.io. Join us next week for another episode of When It Mattered. I'll see you then.